Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. Anybody remember Women's Lib? In case you're not old enough to remember, that's what feminism was called before it became feminism, and it was short for Women's Liberation. Women wanted to be treated the same as men. That began with Betty Friedan, Gloria Steinem in the late 60s, and now a woman is just as likely as a man to win this award. And now, it's time for The Jerk of the Week, starring John Steigerwald. Yep, here we are in 2023, and women may have gotten what they wished for. This young woman has made history. She's the first anonymous winner, until further notice anyway, of this award. We'll just call her 9 to 5 Girl. Listen. I know I'm probably just being so dramatic and annoying, but this is my first job, like my first 9 to 5 job after college, and I'm in person, and I'm commuting in the city, and it takes me forever to get there. There's no way I'm going to be able to afford living in the city right now, so that's off the table. Like, fucking duh! If I was able to walk to work, it, it'd be fine, but I'm not. So it literally takes me, like, I leave here, like, I get on the train at 7.30, and I don't get home till like, 6.15 earliest, and then, like, I don't have time to do anything. I don't, I want to shower eat my dinner and go to sleep. I don't have time or energy to cook by dinner either. Like, I don't have energy to work out. Like, that's out the window. Like, I'm so upset. Oh, my God. Nothing to do with my job at all. But just, like, the 9 to 5 schedule in general is crazy. Being in the office 9 to 5, like, if it was remote, you get off at 5 and you're home and everything's fine. But, like, I'm not home. It takes me long to get home. And, like, like people that drive to the office, like, it doesn't – you don't get off at 5 and I know it could be worse. I know I could be working longer, but, like, I literally get off. It's pitch black. Like, I don't have energy. How do you have friends? Like, how do you have time to, like, meet, like, a guy? I don't know. Like, how do you have time for, like, dating? Like, I don't have time for anything. And I'm, like, so stressed out. And I'm also getting my period. So that's why I'm all emotional. But, like, am I so dramatic? It's fine. Yeah, you're a little dramatic. You sound like you're 10. Sounds a lot like the uh, life men have been leading for the last 120 years or so. Of course, Gloria Steinem probably never imagined that 50 years later, women would have the ability to whine about it to millions of people. But we know this, 9 to 5 girl can now brag about being the AM 1250, the answer, jerk of the week. Yes, in the famous words of Helen Reddy, I am woman Hear me whine. Oh, my. That's just, that, that's about as nauseating as it gets. Anyway, when we come back, if 9 to 5 girl has you a little worried about the future, wait until you hear about the military trying to find recruits, recruits who aren't fat. And in our second half hour, how the Supreme Court did the Democrats a favor by allowing the government to go back to censoring contact, content it doesn't like. Stick around.
Well, now that the uh, now that World War Three might be around the corner, it seems like a pretty good idea to uh, well, a good time to check out our military to see if it's ready. Maybe not. Maybe it's not a good time. Uh, Steve Cohen writes for uh, City Journal and is a former member of the board of directors of the United States Naval Institute. He joins us now. Steve, thanks for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having me. So uh, it's good to have you on. The the headline of your piece is the few, the fat. The fatigued. That does not sound good. It's less than good. And <laughs> it is a real concern. Yeah. I wish I had the I wish I was responsible for the uh the headline, but I give all credit to the to the guys at the City Journal. You know, I wrote the article right, I and know. they make it better all the time. Yeah, they do the headlines. But, so. but I, I a, a recurring concern of mine is how few people in America even consider serving their country mm-hmm. through the military. And such an extraordinarily small percentage of eligible 17 to 24-year-olds can actually make the grade. That's the next concern. Current you know, capabilities, that's one bucket. Willingness and ability to use the military appropriately, a second bucket. Mm-hmm. But if the future pipeline of people able and willing to serve is shrinking and shrinking, that's a real long-term problem. And that's what I was writing about. Yeah, and and who is joining the military these days? And are there enough uh, joining to maintain uh, an all-voluntary military? Well, the the short answer is no, we don't have enough joining. Each of the military services, except the Marine Corps, have missed their recruiting goals for the last two years. Let me put it in perspective. In total, the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, Coast Guard need about 170,000 young people every year to join. Because obviously, there's attrition. Some just get old, leave the service. Some people get injured, leave the service. Some people say, it's not for me. So you have to refresh that pipeline every year with about 170,000 young people. There are, in any given year about 4 million 18-year-olds and 4 million 19-year-olds, 20-year-olds, etc. But most people, when they consider joining the military, are in that 18-year-old cohort. So you would think that, okay, if I only need 170,000 qualified young people to join this year out of 4 million, that's not too hard a lift. It turns out it's a very hard lift. And the services are struggling. The Army, this past year, missed its recruiting target by 25%. 15,000 slots that they didn't fill. The Navy was almost as bad with a shortfall of 19%, about 7,500 people that they needed that they couldn't fill those slots. The Air Force, for about the first time in the last 40 years, was 10% shy Coast Guard, about 8%, and the only armed service that made its recruiting goals was the Marine Corps. That's a problem. Now, what is it about the Marines that, I guess, that the Marines are, are kind of a status thing, that if you you can brag about being in the Marines, then people will be impressed? And, and, uh, and be more impressed. so, Yeah, yeah. More so than the other branches, and, I guess. Well, part of that is, 
you know, just the standards that the Marine Corps has maintained. But part of it is mystique. Part of it is they know who they are. Mm-hmm. And the Marines have used the same slogan, I think, since the 1970s, which is the few, the proud, the Marines. And look, any, almost anybody can go, you know, can try to enlist in the Marine Corps. But the standards for getting through boot camp are significant and they're tough. And mm-hmm. when someone gets that Eagle Globe and Anchor, that pin that signifies the Marines, it is special. And they do feel special, and they realize they are part of something bigger than themselves. And that's and it's true of all the military services, but the Marine Corps is really true to its heritage and to its mission and to its identity. Mm-hmm. And that's not as true of the other military services. And you're, I don't think a, a Marine allows you to refer to him or her uh, as a former Marine either. You're a Always Marine, a Marine. Right? Once a Marine, always a Marine. Yeah, and I, I don't think that's the case with the other branches, uh, I, I, although you, I guess you, know, you could make the same claim, but the Marine will not allow you to refer to him as a former Marine. Um, exactly true. Uh, so how many who might want to join in this group of uh, 18 to 20, 17 or 18 to 24-year-olds would want to join or, or, or are trying to join and just don't qualify? Well, Shocking how many do not qualify. About use a round number, about eighty percent of that cohort of eighteen year olds, but it's expanded over all the you know, the seventeen to twenty four year olds, about almost eighty percent don't qualify. And most of them don't qualify for a combination of reasons. The most shocking of which is that they're overweight and close to obese. You know, just an extraordinary number of young people are both overweight, uh, about 30% of that, you know, 4 million person cohort, about 30% are obese. And that's obese, obese and not fat. Yeah, beyond disqualifyingly Mm -hmm. fat. Now, when you throw in the, you know, the the physical fitness requirements, so they they may be overweight, but they get close. Now, can they pass the physical test? And the physical tests are tough. You know, it, you know, now they're getting less tough, but they are still tough. You still have to be able to run and you have to be able to do pull-ups. And you have to be, and I guess they're switching out uh, sit-ups now or crunches and using planks for core strength. And you have to do it for, you know, a couple minutes. And lots of people do not qualify. About another 15% of the, you know, 18-year-old cohort do not have the education, whether it's a high school degree, a GED, or can't pass the armed forces test and get a sufficient grade mentally. And look, the military is getting tougher, you know, intellectually. And you think of, you know, the technology that the average, you know, you know, private or corporal has to deal with or seaman has to deal with. That's pretty sophisticated technology. You've got to have the gray matter yeah. to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. So you, you lose 30% to obesity, um, another um, you know, 15% to mental inabilities. You've got another 10% of people who have significant criminal, you know, probably interactions with the criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's going to get rid of another tw- uh, 10% or so. Um, 
you, you have some who are parents who may not qualify, young parents who are taking care of a uh, sibling or a child. And that, that 4 million cohort is getting smaller and smaller. Now, here's the most significant thing. The, the most important correlation when you see who actually does join the military, the, the best predictor is having a relative and secondly, a core close friend who has already served in the military. Mm -hmm. And that percentage is dropping so precipitously. You know, you think of, you know, every one of my parents, you know, my, my father's, not, not my parents, not my mother, but my father served, yeah. his father served. Um, so among people, and then the, the statistics I was looking at most recently come from the Pew Research Center, and they, they were 10 years old, but it's still indicative. Mm -hmm. Of people who 10 years ago were 65 years of age, 76% of them had a relative, had a family tie, someone who had served in the military. 75%, and it was almost identical for people 50 to 64, 10 years ago. 75% or so had people, had relatives who had served in the military. That same year that the poll was taken, among 18 to 29-year-olds, it was only 33%. The number of people who have served and the reference group, the, someone you can turn to and say, what was it like? Was it meaningful? What could I do? Has disappeared. People have, there are fewer people whose relatives have served. So that's one of the major, major impediments to getting young people to even consider service. Yeah, I'm, uh, that, that's the real significant one. Yeah, I, I'm the son of a World War II veteran, so, um, you know, they, I think that's, those numbers, everybody served in World War II, just about, and uh, in some capacity, every man was, you know, most men had to, had to be, they were drafted or they enlisted in World War II, so... Uh, I guess all the guys I ran around with, most of their fathers had served, so that I can see where that number would drop. But, but you know, you were talking about the fitness requirements. I was just on, yeah. <laughs> I was just on the phone with a friend of mine, who's seventy-two years old, lives out in California, and I mentioned I was telling him about having you on the show today, and I asked him about push-ups, and I he, he I knew he was a guy who does push-ups. He's seventy-two. I said. How, are you doing push-ups? He said, yeah, I, I stopped doing them for a while. I'm back doing them again. He said, I'm doing seven sets of 15, okay? Wow. So, so now tell me what the what the requirement is for the Navy. I think it's 10. <laughs> so an 18-year-old uh, kid, I, come on, you got, okay, there's eight, nine, one more. And you're, you're 10, I could, I could drop down right here and do 10 push-ups. Yeah. Without any Even doubt, I, I could do it. Yep. And um, so there are people it, that like that this is this is all they require is ten push-ups. Yeah. That's um, stunning. See, I, I think with the Air Force, it's done away with the run, and now it can be a fast walk. I mean, the Navy still requires swimming. You know, to stay in the service. Yep. You know, to pass the fitness test. But so it's the you know the obesity problem is not only affecting the potential recruiting pool. It's affecting people in the military, and the number of people who are considered overweight, not yet obese, has doubled from about 10% to 20% in the Navy. That's a, now the, you know, we're talking about people who are in the service now are fat. Yes. Too fat. Exactly. Too fat. 
Um, you know, I want to go back to the, you know, the, the people who you know who may have served in the military. Yeah. I, I saw a number the other day of all the candidates, ru- announced candidates, mm-hmm. running for president. Mm-hmm. Exactly one served in the military. Who's that's that? pretty shocking. DeSantis. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's right. Ron DeSantis. Yeah, 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 yeah. Everybody, no one else. No, that's not a litmus test, but it is indicative of, you know, the changing society. It was always considered absolutely necessary if you were going to be a political candidate to have served and served successfully in the military. That's no longer an expectation. I think it's too bad. It might actually be a detriment now. We're, we're, we're talking to uh, Steve Cohen. He writes for the City Journal. You can find his piece at city-journal.org. He's also a f- uh, formerly on the board of directors at the United States Naval Institute. Um, yeah, it used to be uh, when I was a kid, and I'm a baby boomer, when I was a kid, the, the old timers used to say to you, what, des- what you need is two good years in the Army. Uh, and I, went, you know, I, I didn't get drafted because I was lucky and got a high draft number. A draft lottery number, but um, you know it was considered uh, something that made a man out of you to get a couple years in the service. That's not the case anymore. Well, man or woman, but it's right. an incredible experience. You know, yeah. uh, look, I'm here in New York City. My kids, you know, upper middle class, went to private school, go to college, and my younger son enlisted in the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. And the experience, the the exposure to people, unlike oneself mm-hmm. is unbelievably important, unbelievably valuable. You know, I, I, I did um, some research recently, and I've written about this in City Journal before, and I've, I've got a piece pending there right now. I, I asked people, how do you feel about mandatory national service? Mm-hmm. Not necessarily military service, yeah. but serving your country for a year or 18 months, minimum, beyond, below the minimum wage. And what surprises me is that an overwhelming supermajority of young people are in favor of it. Wow. Now, those who want to serve in the military, it would be voluntary. But you would serve, whether it's in a, a, a CCC type of thing, or working in an old age home, or working in a preschool, or working in a healthcare environment, or cleaning up the environment, I think people want to be part of something bigger than themselves, whether it's the military or a sense of, you know, contributing. I, I, I am an optimist, and I think if we made that opportunity available or made that demand or that requirement of people, people would rise to the occasion. Nobody has brought that up as part of the political uh, debate in well, a very, very long time. Well, I'm out of time, Steve. I only have about 30 seconds here, but um, I do. I am confident that they're going to have their pronouns straight. I, I'm, I'm pretty confident that Nobody's going to be misgendered in the military anytime soon. I don't think so. <laughs> as long as you call, as long as you call the, the boss sergeant, yeah, the staff sergeant, you're safe. Yeah, good. Hey, Steve, I appreciate you coming on. Great piece and disturbing stuff. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay, that's Steve Cohen. You can find him at city-journal.org. I'll be right back. Well, it looks like the Supreme Court did the Democrats a favor last week because of a ruling on government colluding with big tech to control what you hear and don't hear or see for the next uh, eight or nine months. Vita Duffy Alfonso of The Federalist has some examples of the way uh, ways big tech has helped and what we can expect now. The 
that ruling has come down. She joins us now. Abita, thanks for coming on again. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. So what was the ruling and which conservatives on the court made it happen? Allowed it to happen, yeah. I guess. Right. So it's actually a stay on on a lower court decision um, to, to basically put a halt on the Surgeon General, the White House, the CDC, the FBI, um, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Agency, all of them from colluding with big tech companies to censor American. This is in the Missouri v. Biden court case. The, the Supreme Court put a stay on an injunction saying they could no longer collude with big tech companies. Uh, and and what's, what's really happening now and what, what I think um, the, the dissenting justices have said is it's resuming all of the dangerous censorship that Missouri v. Biden outlined. We have, you know, the Hunter Biden laptop story. We have all everything related to COVID, right? All of the ways that the CDC, that Dr. Fauci was colluding with big tech companies to curate um, the narrative on COVID, whether that had to do with masking, lockdown, vaccines. Uh, and then, of course, the, the integrity of the 2020 election. That was a huge deal in the lead up where big tech companies were getting directives from the federal government to say, hey, anybody that's saying mass mail-in balloting might not be so secure, silence that person, shut down their account, limit their reach, and then boost government narratives. So we're in a really sort of serious situation because that halt from a lower court has now um, been thrown out by the Supreme Court. And, and until the Supreme Court hears Missouri v. Biden, potentially in June is what they think, uh, we are opened up for, for more government censorship uh, and First Amendment violations. Yeah, so it's not really a ruling. It's a, it's a, um, there was a ruling by a lower court, and the Supreme Court said that it's not ready to rule on it yet. Right. Correct. So the Supreme Court's not ready to rule on it, but um, until, until they do rule on it, I guess we're open to more censorship, which is mm-hmm. a really scary thing when you think about the upcoming election uh, yeah. and what's at stake with the Biden administration already waging lawfare um, on Donald Trump's re-election campaign. But Gorsuch, uh, Alito, and Thomas voted uh, to go with it and not put a stay on it, right? Yeah, so yeah. so Clarence Thomas, Gorsuch, and, and then Samuel Alito wrote a dissent, and they and they said what, what I'm essentially telling you, that this is a really unfortunate mm-hmm. um, this decision from the court and that will actually green light, apparently, the legal government censorship. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, who would be in favor if, if it's been pretty well established that there was government censorship? And we'll talk to you. I'll, I'll get you to talk about some of the examples here in a minute. But it's pretty obvious to most people that the government was doing it, including uh, a, a federal judge who ruled that they couldn't do it anymore. Um, who would be in favor of that? What What is the case that someone would make for being in favor of that being allowed to continue? Well, it's really so it's really interesting, right? Um, one of the arguments is that it would prohibit President Biden from, um, you know, disseminating crucial information to the American people. So somehow it would it would hinder the president of the United States from saying what he needs to say. But that's a really silly argument, because specifically in in the original injunction that the court put a stay on, they excluded President Biden from from all of it. So he's he's free to say and and do whatever he wants. This is really goes. It's really targeted specifically at certain federal agencies 
who have been proven uh, to be silencing speech and, and hindering Americans' First Amendment rights. This is very, this is very easy. The, the, the injunction was, was very clear that it only had to do with First Amendment violations and certain federal agencies. Um, all of the arguments against the injunction are, are really, in my opinion, not, not very genuine. Uh, and it's really coming from people who like the government to be mm-hmm. censoring Americans for certain speech because they have something to, to gain from it. What is the FITF? Yeah, so <laughs> this is a this is a part of the uh, the, the FBI, and it, it essentially it's, it's called the Foreign Influence Task Force. Essentially, it met weekly in the lead up to the 2020 election with big tech companies um, to warn them that there would potentially be a dump operation ahead of the election. And what what ended up happening was a lot of that a lot of these tech companies saw the Hunter Biden laptop story then as Russian disinformation because they were warned so many times by the FITF that there would be uh, a, a hack of information or, or a way of colluding with the, with the upcoming election. But even when the companies, specifically Facebook, asked um, the, the FBI if this Russian, oh, I'm sorry, if the Hunter Biden laptop story was Russian disinformation, the FBI didn't respond. So they wouldn't, they wouldn't tell them, the tech companies, that they actually knew the story was real and had been confirmed since 2019. It was it was purely to interfere with the election in favor of Joe Biden. Um, and, and really, I it, polls show probably changed the results of the election. Yeah, yeah. And so that the Hunter Biden laptop story is always going to be the prime example of, of how it's done and the effect of it, right? Right, right, uh, exactly. Yeah. Then there was COVID, as you mentioned. Is there anyone out there who at this point doesn't know the da- I guess some people on Supreme Court uh, that don't know the damage that was done with um, the number of people affected by the government putting its thumb on the tech companies to decide which uh, they're going to which information people are going to be allowed to hear or see? Right. And, and I, I think the, the COVID example is, is very, very interesting because it was essential. It was it was pretty essential to Joe Biden's reelection campaign to demonstrate that COVID was a super, super serious threat and that Donald Trump hadn't done enough to address it. Right. And so the government narrative on vaccines, on masking, on lockdowns, which were heavily supported by Democrats, it was essential that these things be viewed as necessary, um, that the vaccines be viewed as as always effective, um, because ultimately it was a Democrat narrative that helped Joe Biden um, and and really the, the federal government at large. So it, it was it was a real meddling in an American speech, but I think also arguably had an impact on the 2020 election as well. Yeah, some of this stuff obviously it was going on. In 2020, and it was a 2020 election, but Donald Trump was still president. So um, who were these people who were uh, supposed to, I, I, they, they were working against Donald Trump. We know now that a lot of people were doing that. But where were these people coming from that were, that were uh, involved with going to these meetings and delivering these messages? 
it's so interesting because you, you think that you elect a Republican president and then suddenly things are going to really dramatically change. But the reality is there are swamp creatures who exist in, in, in Washington and always will, and they've embedded themselves into these federal agencies that never get smaller, that always get bigger, and they're able to operate really without any oversight. I mean, even if Congress catches an agency doing something illegal, it's impossible to get information from them, to bring people in to testify. Um, th- there is a, a group of people in Washington who continue to operate in the shadows without any kind of oversight, and it ultimately are interfering in our elections and, and violating some of our most basic freedoms in America. One of the worst ones I don't think people know a ton about um, is CISA, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Agency. It is a subsidiary of the DHS. And CISA actually says that part of their role, what they think is part of their role, this is the current director of CISA said this, that part of their role is to protect Americans' cognitive infrastructure. That's the phrasing she used. That cognitive infrastructure, meaning our brains. Right. They think that they have their job to control our minds in order to protect us. This is extremely Orwellian. It's 100% against the Constitution, and they're doing it um, without the consent of the people. And it's why you still see people walking around outside in the, uh, you know, in the park wearing a mask. They're still out there. They've been convinced forever, and it's to me, every time I see somebody like that, it's just another, um, it's more proof that it worked, that there are still remnants of it out there. Yeah. Yeah, and what, what, what I think is interesting is who the deep state decides that they're willing to work with. Obviously, with Trump, they were operating in the shadows. They were mm-hmm. working against him. They, they were, I mean, arguably, they, they tried to stage a coup against him with Russia collusion. But when Biden came in, um, there was, there's, a, there's been a lot more, um, cohesion between the chief state and the Biden administration. So one of the one of the topics that's sort of suppressed by um, big tech companies is actually Biden parody account content. So if you if there's a, an account that's critical or making fun of Joe Biden or one of Biden's granddaughters or even Bidenomics, the White House was is on record sending emails to Twitter, to Facebook, to other tech companies saying, "Hey, this needs to be." taken down, we need to get rid of this. It, it is like a real authoritarian regime where the narrative needs to be controlled at all times, even going so far as to to censor parody content. Now, now, no longer is that even allowed if it's making fun of, of the Bidens. So it is, it is really far-reaching, um, and I think it really demonstrates just how authoritarian the Biden administration is. We're talking to uh, Avita Duffy Alfonso, uh, you can find her per- piece at thefederalist.com. I'm looking now through the piece because you're mentioning the parody thing, and I, I want to get this. This um, this is this is from an official that uh, wrote to t- Twitter about. This is the language. I think this is what this is what's important. This is uh, talking about making fun of the Bidens. Uh, the quote is: "Cannot stress the degree to which this needs to be resolved immediately. Please remove this account immediately." And as you write. The account was banned within 45 minutes. So who who sent that? And boy, it sure worked, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, so this is a these are senior White House officials who actually had be, before Missouri v. Biden had a streamlined process where they would 
so generally, if you're a company, right, if you're an individual and you want to get something taken down from Twitter or Facebook, you have to go through a process, an appeals process. The White House had its own personalized portal where White House officials would get their content um, prioritized and sent directly to censors at big tech companies to then address that kind of content that the White House didn't like. This was this was not this is not normal collusion. This was this was very um, intense um, and and really illegal. I want to play something for you. I'm going to change subjects here, and I warned you I was going to play this for you. But uh, you are someone who is uh, relatively uh, well. You, you're you're still young, and you, you're not out of college all that long. So I wanted to play this for you because I wanted to get someone from your generation to comment on it. This is uh, the winner of this week's uh, Jerk of the Week Award. And I don't know her name, but we're calling her 9 to 5 Girl. And uh, I'll just let you listen to parts of this, and then I want to get your comment on it, okay? I know I'm probably just being so dramatic and annoying, but this is my first job, like my first 9 to 5 job after college. And I'm in person, and I'm commuting in the city, and it takes me forever to get there. There's no way I'm going to be able to afford living in the city right now, so that's off the table, like... Duh! If I was able to walk to work, and it would, it'd be fine, but I'm not. So it literally takes me, like, I leave here, like, I get on the train at 7.30, and I don't get home till like, 6.15 earliest, and then, like, I don't have time to do anything. I don't, I want to shower, eat my dinner, and go to sleep. I don't have time or energy to cook my dinner either. Like, I don't have energy to work out. Like, that's out the window. Like, I'm so upset. Okay, you heard enough of that? Um, uh, yeah. We want to give me a... How many do you know people like this, Avita? Yeah, I do. I I think probably she's she's most people. I oh I had a different I, I had a different reaction than than most people do, and I think probably than than you do by the way that you framed this yeah. this video because I I actually feel really sorry for her, and I think a lot of women and men are in this position because it's not the issue isn't necessarily the work. I think. I think the problem is is modernity. I think the problem is that we Gen Z, the generation that I'm in, that this this young girl is in, mm-hmm. we are the most mentally ill generation to date, the most irreligious generation to date, um, and those two things are not are, are not unconnected, right? right? I mean, this, we we are a generation that does not have the same familial ties that we used to. We're sucked into phones, but on average eight to nine hours a day. That's a huge portion of your waking hours. We're, we're starved of human connection. And so the, the, the grind of corporate life, in addition to not having real purpose in your life, makes people depressed. It 100% does. And I think, I think, yeah, she might come off as lazy to a lot of older generations, but I think the issues that Gen Z is facing are, are different than in the past. I think this is, a, this is really a unique generation just because of the rise of technology because of of the loss of faith and and the 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 destruction of the family these things make people depressed and on top of a soulless corporate job i I don't know what people expect from her yeah that well that's a great that's a great answer and i i'm glad i got your perspective on it it but what she described there is my dad 60 years ago going off to work every day nine to five that's that was the world and I guess we're producing people who can't cope with it for one reason or another. That's the world. I mean, I, I took a job in TV doing sports because I didn't want to work nine to five. 
Uh, so I understand that, but I got I got to take a break. But I, I really appreciate your uh, your perspective on that. It was very good, uh, and uh, I get it. So thanks for coming so on. Okay. Of course. Thank you, Vito. Have you on again? All right. All right. Okay. Thanks. That's Avita Duffy Alfonso. I'm out of time. We'll be right back. Well, today's the anniversary of uh, something I wasn't made aware of until uh, about an hour and a half ago. So if I had been made aware of it or had remembered it, uh, I, I might have done the whole show on this. And so if uh, I guess what I'm saying to you is if you do anything else tonight, go on YouTube and uh, search Ronald Reagan, uh, A Time for Choosing, and listen to his speech. It's... Uh, Done in 1964, and it was a it was a campaign speech basically for Barry Goldwater. But it was a half hour, and it was on national TV. And uh, I'm just gonna I was gonna I I could actually I wouldn't feel the least bit guilty about running it and uh, as a, almost the entire show. But I'm just gonna I'm gonna read a couple of lines here from it, and you'll you'll know what I'm saying. Uh, It's time we asked ourselves if we still know the freedoms intended for us by the Founding Fathers. James Madison said, quote, We base all our experiments on the capacity of mankind for self-government. This idea that government was beholden to the people, that it had no other source of power, is still the newest, most unique idea in the long history of man's relation to man. This is the issue of this election, whether we believe in our capacity for self-government or whether we abandon the American Revolution and confess that a little intellectual elite in a far distant capital can plan our lives for us better than we can plan them ourselves. You and I are told we must choose between a left or right, but I suggest there is no such thing as a left or right. There is only an up or down, up to man's age-old dream, the maximum of individual freedom consistent with order, or down to the ant heap of totalitarianism. Regardless of their sincerity, their humanitarian motives, Those who would sacrifice freedom for security have embarked on this downward path. That's uh, Ronald Reagan. Reagan, Pretty smart. That's 59 years ago today. And I actually remember, I was a kid, obviously, but I remember my dad watching that speech. And he said to me, that guy is going to be president someday. I swear he said that. Now, remember, that that was an insane thing for somebody to say at the time. This is Ronald Reagan. He's an actor. What are you talking about? Well, he then went on to become governor of California two years later, and I'm pretty sure he became president and did a pretty good job after that. But I do remember my dad saying that, and my dad was pretty good at predictions like that. Matter of fact, I remember him uh, at the same, right around the same time. The Pirates brought up this young player. He was pretty good. Now, people didn't know a lot about him. He was a prospect. And within about a week of the guy playing for the Pirates, my dad said, that guy's going to be a superstar. His name was Willie Stargell. He turned out to be a pretty good player. So uh, my dad was pretty good at that. And he also, about a few years after that, the Steelers were getting ready to draft in 1972. The Penn State had two really good running backs. And everybody was saying that the Steelers, all the, all the experts were predicting that the Steelers would and should Take Lydell Mitchell. My dad said to me, you know, Lydell Mitchell's pretty good, but I think the other guy's better. That was Franco Harris. But listen to that speech tonight, and I'll talk to you on Monday.